We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Ten things to tell. This show is about connection with each other and with ourselves. And the hope is that the things we talk about here will be fuel for better conversations and a personal awareness. This is an interactive podcast. Each episode has a prompt and a topic that I want you to take to your journal, text to your best friend, or answer on social media using the hashtag 10 things to tell you. This is a show about digging deeper and sharing our stuff. I'll go first. Welcome to this episode of the 10 Things to Tell You podcast. It is election week here in the United States, and while I know not all listeners to this show are American, I also know that the whole world is watching our country's presidential election. And this campaign season, because of COVID because of the last five years in general, it has been really contentious and emotions are high. And I spent a long time thinking about what kind of episode would make sense for this moment. And I decided that talking about some of the more interesting figures in our country's history, people with more influence and consequence than we probably give them credit for in our history books, that that would be a good place to land this week. So today we are going to talk about first ladies, that is to say the spouses, the wives of the American presidents. And it just so happens that I have a friend, Andrew Oak, who is an expert on all things first ladies. In fact, he calls himself the first ladies man after he made a series for C-SPAN titled First Ladies Influence and Image. He then went on to write not one, but two books about these women called Unusual for Their Time, Volumes 1 and 2. You can find all of this on his website, firstladiesman.com. Andrew Oak is passionate about the first ladies. He speaks all over the country to groups and schools about the women that were alongside the elected leaders of the highest office in our nation. You will see from our conversation how fun he makes this topic. Gosh, I would have loved to have had a history teacher like this when I was a younger person. And I came away from our discussion with a new appreciation for the partners who are often just footnotes in a bigger story, but who really deserve much more than that. Now, we do talk a bit about this towards the end of the episode, but I just want to reiterate here how strange it is in 2020, 250 years after our country's founding, to still only be talking about these partnerships in such traditional gender roles. It is a shame 
that we have not yet had a woman president, and I am hopeful for a future where we are studying first gentleman or first partner or some kind of title I don't even know yet. But what we have to talk about today are just a small handful of the strong, influential, and often surprising first ladies. I learned a ton from Andrew in this episode. I hope that you do too. Remember, if you choose to share the show, please make sure and tag us at 10 Things to Tell You so we can see it. And if you enjoy our show, please subscribe in your favorite podcast app and give us a five-star rating on iTunes. It really does matter. And now to my conversation with Andrew Oak, aka the First Ladies Man. Andrew, welcome to the 10 Things to Tell You podcast. I am so excited for this conversation. I have wanted to have you on the show for ages now because what you are an expert on is so interesting to me. But before we dive all the way in, will you just tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and how you came to be an expert on American First Ladies? Yeah, Laura, great. And thank you for having me on here. I'm a big fan as well. I've been following your podcast and all of your friends and posts, and it's just amazing to be here with you. So I greatly appreciate it. I'm a television producer. I went to University of Maryland, uh, radio, television, and film. I've done all kinds of documentaries and news and, and short format, long format. And something came across my desk that just seemed interested because I like to tell stories. I like to tell stories that are true. I like to tell stories that haven't been told. And to tap into this resource of first ladies, of which we know who they are, but we don't know all of them, or we don't know all there is to know about all of them. In fact, very, very little. And the more I dove into this project, it was a series for C-SPAN called First Ladies Influence and Image, and it was co-sponsored by the White House Historical Association. So some real heavy hitters behind this production, behind this study, and to do something that no one else had done. I mean, I say it publicly all the time, and I didn't even realize it while I was doing it, but I've gone to nearly every home, library, church, school, birthplace, cemetery, for every First Lady, Martha Washington, through now Melania Trump, and there's just no one that has done that or had this perspective. So it all couldn't fit into the series, all the hours, all the time, all the research, all the things I saw. So I decided I had this sort of, I had to let it all out. The, the first ladies made me the first ladies man because their stories are just so great and so influential on our modern world. Oh, I just think it's so fascinating. And I love that you got really into it, that you weren't dismissive about it, that you could see how important a role the first ladies have played in our history. I really respect that you've taken on this project. Let's okay. talk about first ladies just in general first. You know, like just general facts about first ladies. We've had 45 presidents. Have there been 45 first ladies? Like, have there been first ladies that have died? Have there been extra first ladies? Like, I kind of want to know just a, a big picture of the spouses of our American presidents. Great question, Laura, and something that I didn't know before the series. You would think there's been as many first ladies as there have been presidents, but there haven't. There's actually been more because some presidents have gone into office as widowers. Some presidents have lost their wives in office and been married more than once. They've had their daughters step in, their family members. Some first ladies more in the, in the 1800s were not physically able to fulfill the duties of the role, and they had their daughters or family members or some step in. So there's well over 45 first ladies, and given the format of, of your podcast, I've assembled 10 first ladies 
that I would like to tell you 10 things about. One of each of the first ladies and kind of set it up there, but we're just scratching the surface on each of these 10 ladies and scratching the surface on first ladies in general because there are so many and their influence has been so great. So I'd like to start off with, with number one, Martha Washington, if that's okay. I want to hear about Martha Washington, but I have a couple more questions about first ladies that sure, just yeah. occurred to me. As you were talking, it comes to me. Is there a place that defines the role? Like, is that written somewhere? How do you even know what your role is as first ladies? In my lifetime, they have really sort of run the gamut of like how involved they have been or how, you know, public forward facing they have been or not. And so I'm just sort of curious if there's some sort of definition to the role as first lady. Another great question and and a misconception. And and it's sort of like the foundation of my theories, my thesis and what I've found. This role is not elected and not paid for. They happen to marry a guy that happened to have this crazy idea and beat the odds. You have a greater uh, chance of winning the lottery, getting struck by lightning, being eaten by a shark than you do to become president. So they married this guy who decided to run and then beat all the odds and won. And now they're thrust into this role. There's no first ladies 101. There's no written description of the role. A first lady can do absolutely nothing with it. And some in the past have. And that's when a daughter would step in to host of parties, or in the the case of Chester Arthur or or Thomas Jefferson, things like that, they just handled the hosting duties themselves. They just kind of took it over for the most part and ran their own show. So there's nothing legally binding, no contract, no description. These first ladies step up to the plate, basically, and each one makes the role their own. And a lot of them have been very public about that in the past of how they can focus on the things that are important to them, reading or childhood obesity or some of these causes uh, that we see come out um, that have been there all along, but more publicized in in the modern world. And we know about it, uh, know about them more. And they have to just really go with their gut. And the interesting thing about this is we judge them typically even more so in modern times, as if we have hired them, as if we do pay them, as if they have run for this office and been elected. But it really is an undefined role. And this makes them some of the most powerful and influential women in the world. But don't you think, with the exception of Melania, most of the women that I know, and I will show my ignorance all throughout this conversation, but most of the first ladies I know, their husbands did not wake up and decide to become president, a la President Trump. Most of them had long political careers before they were, you know, elected to be the leader of the nation, right? So, like, in some ways, I've always sort of held Melania in that, like, in a special place of, like, she truly did not sign up for this. Sure. Whereas a lot of the other wives, at least in modern history, let's say, they kind of knew the train they were on, if you will. They could have stepped off at any time. Like by the time they got to the highest office, I've always viewed them as like they were definitely part of that effort. Like they wanted to maybe they, I don't know if they wanted to get there or not, but they certainly didn't hinder their spouse getting there. They must have helped him in some way, right? Or no? Absolutely. You're absolutely correct. There are some first ladies that had their eyes 
on higher office, success, moving forward. Mary Lincoln is one of them. Mary Lincoln was courted by Stephen Douglas, the president of the Confederacy. And she was also courted, she grew up in Lexington, Kentucky. She was also courted by Abraham Lincoln. And she wrote very clearly in a letter, Abraham Lincoln isn't the best looking guy in town, but he's going to be president. You know, as soon as Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton got married, she cleared out their dining room in Fayetteville, Arkansas, and said, this is the war room. You failed in all the political elections you've gone for now. Now you're going to go somewhere and we're going to get you elected uh, state's attorney. We're going to let there are. But if you go back and you look as a whole, most of these women were just looking for men that were going someplace. If you think that women, sadly, have had such lack of privilege and lack of say and not voting and not having formal education or all this other stuff, women of aptitude, women of natural intelligence, women with aspirations, dreams, hopes, places that they wanted to go would see these men that were going places and and hitch their wagon to their horse. You know, it was a way to get their voice said most, especially early on were, were lawyers. You know, these were just guys with good jobs, you know, that they were going. So when they started out, they weren't saying, I'm marrying a politician. Uh, Andrew Johnson was a tailor. Future president of the United States was taught to read and write by his wife in a tailor shop in Greenville, Tennessee. And then he becomes this great orator and everyone just hangs out in his tailor shop. I always imagine it kind of like Cheers, you know, the bar, but a tailor shop where everyone wants to come around and hear this guy talk, but he can't read or write. His wife's teaching him to read or write. And then they're like, hey, why don't you run for mayor or run for city council, run forever? And he ends up to be in this highest you know, office in, in the land. So a lot of the way these women got there was very circuitous, but you're right. You know, there are a lot of people that are, a lot of these women that are like, that are along for the ride. They, they help make their, their husbands who they are. Most of our founding fathers actually married up. You know, they improved their social standing by marrying these women. So they, you know, it's kind of a two-way street, but, but to break it down to, is there a job description versus some, something that they have to do versus what we expect them to do, that is very stark. It's just, there, there is no job description, but we do expect so much of them. But along the way, they do gain this knowledge. They do gain this experience that other people wouldn't have because these political careers do grow over the years. So you're absolutely right in that aspect. What do you feel like the public does expect out of the first lady? Like, it seems when I look back, there's some real obvious markers of, you know, Jackie Kennedy was such a style icon and really made a difference in women's style. Maybe you can see Hillary Clinton as because she had her own ambitions in a different way than other first ladies might have, that that empowered women in a different way. Like, and then we had Laura Bush a personal favorite of mine. I absolutely love Laura Bush, but she was a more behind the scenes first lady and, you know, very beloved just as her, a human in her own right, but also, you know, quieter, definitely behind the spotlight. So all of these are different. What do you think that the public as a whole expects or wants out of a first lady or does it, is there not a set thing? Is it sort of tied to the mood of the country, the, actual president like and over the years has that changed did there used to be expectations and now there aren't or vice versa yeah well that's the point there is that it has changed and it still changes within administrations it's another sort of benchmark of my research or what i've found out what's good for one first lady or what one first lady is celebrated for is often what another is criticized for or lambasted for and we're human 
and especially Americans in general, we are fickle, fickle people. And, and in oftentimes hypocritical in the sense that, you know, we want a first lady to be involved. Okay, well, great. But then when she goes to Congress and she testifies and she wants to have bills and be involved in policy, we say, well, she's not the president. We didn't elect her. There's no real way to say one way or the other of what we expect because it does change. And I think that part of my research and part of what I write about and what I've found is to say that if we give this historical relevance and show these example and show precedent for one way, we can judge these people a little more fairly and expect something a little more fair out of them. If we look at what we have celebrated someone in the past for, a first lady in the past for, typically though, we the people, we see something in in a president or even a first lady, especially a first lady, of what we want to be. We want that family. We want that mom. We want that influence. We want them to tell us, eat your vegetables. We want them to say, go exercise and things like that. We want them to, to, to look good, the fashion, you know, I mean, there's been hemlines and hairlines and necklines. And again, some women have been celebrated, like you say, Jacqueline Kennedy, Harriet Lane, the 15th president, uh, James Buchanan, his niece, he's the only bachelor president never to marry. She was a great fashion icon of the day. Francis Cleveland, another great icon. But then you get people, uh, Nancy Reagan was criticized. They said, you spent Spend too much money on clothes. Mary Lincoln, another one. You spend too much money on clothes or you spend too much money on China or you redecorated the White House. Economic things, times of war, you know, when we're in trouble and people should be saving money and, and they're throwing these, these lavish parties. But you don't want a foreign dignitary coming to the executive mansion and have it be shabby and, and look crummy and, and serve it on bad plates or cracked china or stuff. So it's really, really a tough role because it's almost like you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. And even more so, it's just it seems to be sadly that, that if people don't like their husband, they don't like this first lady. And I'm not just speaking about current. It's been even more so in the last two. And I think that's social media. You know, there's people out there, I think, like you and myself and a, and a whole bunch of other people that are trying to put good content out there and put out good messages, positive messages. But there's a lot of people that put out opinion, that put out false information, that are looking for fights, looking for arguments, things like that. You go back to, as you mentioned, one of your favorites, the last first lady that I can track that people loved her for the most part, no matter what they thought about her husband, who was very divisive in a lot of different troubled times of our country, was Laura Bush. People could have thought, you know, George Bush is the worst president, George W. Bush, the worst president we ever had, but gosh, is his wife, darling. Well, we just go one more click over into the future, and now there's social media, and if people don't like Barack Obama, then Michelle Obama is the worst thing that ever happened to our country. And the same now with the Trump. It's something that, that Melania Trump and Michelle Obama really share in common is that element that, that social media plays in our world and how people's opinions and unsubstantiated you know, facts or people that think that they are facts, they just put it out and they take it as truth without, without researching or finding it and then form these opinions of these women. And it's, it's a difficult spot to be in. Don't you think it's a little bit justified to tie the women to their spouse? One of the reasons that I actually admired this about Laura Bush in the early 2000s, and I don't know that I would feel the same now. 20 years ago, Laura thought, Laura Tremaine thought differently about a lot of things than current Laura does. But one of the things that she sort of famously said was, if I ever disagree with my husband, you will not know it. 
uh, and I might have butchered that quote, but I know that she said that because I sure. was a fan. Yep. I, yep. And that, that's pretty close. It was a value to her to have a unified front. To my mind, um, not in a personal way, but in a public way, she was saying, like, I am an extension of my husband. Like, I will be supporting him publicly. And But don't you think it is a little bit justifiable not to hate the spouse of someone or blindly support the spouse of someone, but it right. is hard to not tie them together. If you really, truly disagree with the way that someone is uh, leading our country, it's hard to untangle how you feel about their spouse. I agree with you that social media has made the spouses unfair targets. I think that that is what social media does to a lot of people. But yeah, you know, I feel like we felt this way with Hillary Clinton too, not so much on Bill Clinton's policies as a president, but Bill Clinton as a human. Mm -hmm. A lot of women had issues with his personal life and it was hard to separate out how you might feel about Hillary if she hadn't, you know, stood by him. Do you know what I mean? Like, and that's a pro and con. It's just Hard to separate, I guess is what I'm saying. It is. No, no. And and you're right. I don't live in a world of unicorns dancing around on cotton candy clouds where it's all just so simple and cut and dry. And of course, they are associated with these men. And they are, typically, they align with them politically more so than not. But historically, there have been some, as you, you mentioned, Laura Bush, Betty Ford, which I'd like to get into a little bit later about uh, some of the decisions and things that she made very famously and very publicly that didn't help her husband. My point in a broad broader stroke of sense that when when these women do try and do good things or they do have a message or they do say something and then they're criticized and lambast that's kind of more of what I'm talking about of course some some of them very openly support their husbands and their husbands policy and then it's free game and you mentioned Hillary Hillary is such a strange it's unique because she broke so many boundaries, so many glass ceilings, went places that no other first lady has gone, went places that no other woman has gone. But when she puts herself in that arena, in that arena where she is elected and she is paid as a senator, as a presidential candidate and things like that, that kind of opens her up to criticize her in a different way because she is taking those political standings, which did align with her husband. So it, it's it's politics it, it, at the core of it. Very, very hard to separate them. I'm just saying when we put those blinders on and we can't at any level separate these women as individuals from their husbands, that's when we have to take a step back and say, they're not the president and they could have their own thoughts and agendas and work that they want to do. And that's where I would like to see them treated more fairly. I am sure that you can agree that literally no one wants to smell bad. But sometimes regular underarm deodorant just isn't cutting it. Or maybe it's not your underarms that need help. With Lumi, you don't have to worry. Lumi is the first of its kind in total body deodorant and is fully safe to use anywhere on your body. It is clinically proven to block odor all day and control it for up to 72 hours. The secret is mandelic acid, where instead of masking odor with a fragrance, it stops the odor before it even starts. I especially love that Lumi deodorant is baking soda and paraben-free, as well as pH-balanced for safe use on all areas of your body. You can choose from a variety of bright scents like clean tangerine, lavender sage, and toasted coconut. Lumi's starter pack is perfect for new customers. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, two free products of your choice like a mini body wash or deodorant wipes, and 
free shipping. As a special offer for listeners, new customers get 15% off all Lumi products with our exclusive code. And if you combine the 15% off with the already discounted starter pack, that equals over 40% off the starter pack. Use code U for 15% off your first purchase at lumideodorant.com. That's code U, Y-O-U, at Lumi, L-U-M-E, deodorant, D-E-O-D-O-R-A-N-T.com. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. So you have 10 women that you're going to highlight today and some facts and interesting things about them, right? So let's go ahead and start with the first one you want to talk about, Martha Washington. Yeah, great. Uh, Martha Washington. I think that most people, I I know that I was in a certain uh, aspect surprised to know that she was married before George Washington. George Washington is not her first husband. And her first husband was so ridiculously wealthy that Martha Washington, Martha Dandridge Custis at the time, when she's a widow at 26 with four children and meets George Washington, she's basically the first successful female CEO of the colonies. She's in charge of 8,000 productive tobacco acres. She's got real estate in Williamsburg. She's got cash on hand, silver to the tune of four to five times the Virginia state governor's annual salary. She is uber rich and uber successful. And at 26 years old, she's running this corporation that George Washington buys into that then if she could not manage this, and she could not handle this well and handle this real estate and handle this corporation, George would have had to. Well, if George has to handle all that, then he couldn't go out and start a revolution, which would become America. And as we mentioned, that changes the face of the modern world. To think that the modern world as we know and exist rests not squarely, but substantially on the shoulders of a 26-year-old widow in the 1700s is not what we're taught in history class. That's just a completely different perspective. Women have always been there. Women are part of the equation. They're part of leadership, whether recognized or not, they're in the rooms. They're they're helping make these decisions that became this idea, that became America. And, And George Washington, if he'd married any other woman, we'd have a different flag. When you think about number one in the 1700s, is that setting the precedent for what these women will do and how it will move forward? It's a mind blower. Yeah, that is a mind blower, honestly. Yeah, it's like a sliding doors moment. If he'd married someone else, would it have been different? And and that, you know, must happen throughout 250 years of the country. It's so true to think about it like that, that obviously who we choose to marry is a major life decision, but it also hinges on all of history. It's like a really well, what, big yeah, thing. Right, right. When it comes down to it, I always say in my public speeches, I say, look, just let's move the chess pieces around. Now, if we move the chess pieces around in my personal life, my father would not have gone out on a blind date with my mother at University of Maryland, and then the world wouldn't have a first ladies' man. How sad would that be? (laughs) Horrible, horrible to think about. But my parents were not Martha Washington and George Washington. So the consequence of it, and and you take something that's so huge 
as the world, as society, as America, and you boil it down to two people, what if they didn't get along, you know? What if the first date didn't go well? What if he was a bad kisser? I mean, anything. That's, you know, there's something to think about as we go through this conversation and even looking back on what we've talked about already. These are human beings. It's easier to think of the more modern ones that we grew up with or that were alive in our lifetime as human beings. But for the most part, before this project for me, is it with a lot of people? Martha Washington was, she was a, a painting. She was a page in a history book. But guess what? She lived, she died, she cried, she loved, she lost. Her first husband died. Two of her children died in childhood. Uh, Her other two children barely lived into adulthood. The children that we see in a lot of the etchings or paintings or things we'll see at Mount Vernon or with regards to the Washingtons are her grandchildren from her children from her first marriage. And, and, and when you see things or when you go or had the access that I did to, to hold things, to sit on their beds, be in their rooms, feel their auras in the rooms, the, the history around you, and you realize that they eat and drink just like us. They go to bed. They wake up. It puts a, a really crazy perspective on what they then become and what it means to, to the world around us. Yeah, it's fascinating. Okay, what else you got for us? Okay, number two, Abigail Adams. And then I'm not going to go in, lo- in order. I promise I probably we're going to jump around quite a bit. But Abigail Adams is often associated with a phrase, remember the ladies. Now, in the 1700s, years before voting, years before women can own land, this is a monumental statement. But what people don't know, or most people don't know, is the words that surround that phrase. And she says to her husband, when he is formulating the first Continental Congress and what would become America... Hundreds of years before women would vote, own land, formal education, she says to her husband, remember the ladies, when they are on your side, the men will be in your favor. This is massive. This is a massive perspective from a woman in the late 1700s to think that she knew back then, I modernize it. I always modernize it. I think about it sitting in my own home. I hold the remote to the TV. I'm sitting in my house. I'm holding the remote but my wife is picking the shows. And you think about this, the influence, it makes it silly and it makes it funny. It's not a literal thing. Of course, we all hold the remote, we do. But when I ask that question publicly, people are like, oh yeah, well, my husband holds the remote. My boyfriend holds the remote, whatever. Of course, it's like a sword, it's powerful. We feel empowered by this remote. But we say, honey, what do you wanna watch? And then you take it to the Abigail Adams times. And if I come home in colonial times and revolutionary times, and I'm John Adams or, or any man, and I say to my wife, Hey, I'm voting for, um, I'm going to vote for John Adams in the election. And she says, well, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard you say. I start to question myself. But if I come home and I say, I'm going to vote for John Adams. And my wife says, that's the smartest thing you've done since you asked me out on a date. And I say, you're right. I'm a smart man. Why am I a smart man? Because my wife said so. She knew hundreds of years before electricity or anything that men would be holding the remotes and women would be picking the shows. And to think about this influence and this partnership and how they advise and how we consult and how we partner to be thinking about that and writing that in the 1700s, it changes the way you look at things. It's a different perspective. Well, it just shows how smart Abigail Adams was because she, of course, had her own life experience, her own community experience, but there was no way for her to understand that on a global scale besides intuition, really, because 
now that we live in an era where there's so much data and so much information, we know this to be actually factually true that in America in 2016, that election hinged on suburban women and our 2020 election will hinge on suburban women. They swing that vote. They are so consequential to our elections, you know, which trickles down into everything to decisions made in the economy, to purchasing decisions within the home. Like all of those things are driven by women. And we think about that now, you know, at my age, how that's sold to me as information. But to think about Abigail Adams knowing that also in however they understood things then, it is really fascinating for her to be like, yeah, John, this is what you need to do. You need to get the women on board. Yeah. Well, I mean, in fact, you think about it, she was sold the exact opposite in the 1700s. Women's opinion didn't matter. Women's vote didn't matter. Women, but and And to rise above that and say... Guess what? And in that time, it's almost impossible. And I struggle with this daily. How do we study or judge or relate to these people hundreds of years ago when we spoke in, we all speak English, but, but it's different English back then. Words mean different things. There was no electricity. There was no cars. There were no refrigerators. The process of daily life, you had a lot of children because typically half of them would die from dehydration or there was no penicillin or modern medicine or all the other stuff. You can't, even issues like slavery and other horrible things or like women not being able to vote or speak at their own insanity trials as Mary Lincoln was not able to with her son, a whole nother can of worms. But you just think of what the societal norms were and what these women were being sold was basically that that they had no say. They didn't matter. And for Abigail to stand up at that point in time and say, not only do I matter, but I matter so much that, John, if you don't have women in mind, you're not going to be successful. You're not going to win elections because when they get home at night, their wives are telling them how to vote or what they think. And they're taking that into consideration. That's fascinating. I'm going to be thinking about this. Right. Okay, number three. I want to jump ahead a little bit. And this is where we get into some of uh, some of the causes and some of the influence and how these women very publicly become going against the grain because we're still in the 1800s. I want to talk about Lucy Hayes, the 19th First Lady of the United States. And many people uh, could not say that her husband was Rutherford B. Hayes. You know, it's not it's not a popular president. It's not a popular name. When she was the wife of the governor, Hayes was governor of Ohio. She did something so not typical of women, so not accepted of women, so not expected in and oftentimes not even allowed. She would go out on behalf of her husband in the 1800s and go to orphanages, veterans affairs, communities, hospitals, mental facilities. And she would come back to her husband and say, this is good. We need more of these. This is bad. We need to fix these. And to think about this woman going into places that were unseemly for a woman or where they were not allowed or not, she'd say, I'm the governor's wife. You're letting me in. Let's go. I need to see how these orphans are being treated. I need to see how these incapacitated people are, are, being, are being treated or taken care of. And then I'm going to go back and, and I'm going to tell my husband. 
and it, that continued into the White House. She was she was a, a a transformative woman, if you will, instead of transitional. There's a lot of of people in general, but speaking as we are in first ladies, that took a lot of what was done in the past by other first ladies and followed it along and continued it. And of course, Lucy would have done some of those traditions and things on her own, but she stepped out in the public eye and said, "I'm going to these places. I'm going to find out what needs to be changed to make life better." for people that don't have good lives. And that is something that continues on even to this day. I mean, you look at Just Say No, Laura Bush trying to help people to read, uh, Hillary Clinton with healthcare for children. Often it goes with with children and, and things like that. Childhood obesity, let's move with Michelle Obama. But you look back at Lucy Hayes and she was one of the first ones to do it in such a public way. And we wouldn't even know her name. She's a first lady that if we were naming five, 10, 15, 20 first ladies, I wouldn't have before all this, I wouldn't have named Lucy Hayes. And to think that she had this type of forethought and this type of ambition and just knowing what's right. And again, doing it because it's the right thing to do, not because she's elected, not because she's expected, not because it's in the job description, not because she's paid to do it. It's because it's because of her position and recognizing that influence to do something good with it. That's just a good person. Yeah, that is. That's incredible. That's taking the advantage of her position, her proximity to power and using it for better. And that's, yeah, that is definitely commendable. Fascinating. Okay. Number four. Okay. Want to jump ahead a little bit to Francis Cleveland. Francis Cleveland is a first lady that has so many first lady firsts or unusual things about her. I thought it would be just fun kind of trivia to throw in. She's the youngest first lady. Frances Cleveland was almost a Jackie Kennedy before Jackie Kennedy. She had young children. She was attractive. She was uh, smart. She was influential, a snappy dresser. And so she was kind of that trifecta, that triple threat, you know, young, attractive, fashion forward, and had children that we would emulate. We want to see ourselves in that type of person. But when she married, she was 21 years old when she married President Grover Cleveland. Grover Cleveland was 49 years old when he married wow. in the White House publicly. I mean, talk about times changing. I'll say this. I'm closer to 49 than I am to 21. I'll just leave it at that. And if I was president, a single president in modern times, and I, I married publicly at 21, I mean, people would have stuff to say about that. That just wouldn't, that just wouldn't fly. Did they not have stuff to say about it back then? Was that? No, it was, it was, it was just so, it was just so different. Younger women, you know, there were dowries. People were promised to people. It was like just the, it was just, it was such a different world that people were like, good for him. Good for her. And they got married right at, she's the only first lady to get married in the White House. They got married in a blue room ceremony. And then they went off to Deer Park, Maryland, near Deep Creek Lake out in Western Maryland and had their honeymoon, took the train out there. And people couldn't have been more happy about it. They were at that point, if you think about the mentality of people, they were happier to see the president married at all because people were just supposed to get married and supposed to have children. I mean, the idea of a bachelor president was just kind of crazy. It's almost a wonder how he even won the election without a first lady, because we want that whole package. Is there documentation on <laughs> on Francis Cleveland's general happiness? Like, did she seem oh, to yeah. like? Wonderfully happy. I actually, I spoke 
and met over the phone Anne Roberts, who is Francis Cleveland's granddaughter. I don't know if she's still alive. This is a number of years ago, but because Francis Cleveland in the late 1800s was 21 years old, she long outlived President Cleveland, got married again, lived in Baltimore and New Jersey, and in her second marriage had children that then had children. So she became a grandmother. And this woman, Ann Roberts, was was in her 80s when I met her and talked to her. And she talked about her grandmother. This woman knew this first lady from the 1800s and told me about her. And by all reports, she, she loved Grover. And, and had a perfectly happy and would have stayed married. Well, she did. She stayed married to him until he died. But he was 20 plus years older than her. So he went first as the natural order of things, but was, was very, very happy. And they had numerous children and were quite popular. In fact, it's one of the first times we start to see people campaigning for president with their wife on images. They had Francis Cleveland fans that they hung, handed out at conventions and buttons. And there were, there were ad campaigns done. I remember uh, seeing at the Smithsonian uh, an ad for some yarn uh, thread company for sewing. And it said, sewing the country together, Francis and Grover Cleveland. I mean, they, we emulated that. We wanted to be them. We wanted to be this happy couple, this young, attractive wife with young kids in an active White House, you know, kids playing in the yard, just like we were so ecstatic when the Obamas got a dog and put in a playground. Uh, you know, it's like we want to see them acting as humans. We want to see this type of stuff. And, and people couldn't have been happier about it. She was a wildly popular first lady. Oh, that's so interesting that that was the first time that they kind of used the spouse. And I don't mean used in a negative way, but, you know, took on like a young, energetic type spouse and use that as part of the campaign material. That's like sort of that's I like that. I mean, do I like that? I don't know. I didn't think about it. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's that's a whole, hey, look, you know what? I mean, one of the last things I would ever do in life is run for office. I mean, because it's just the scrutiny and what they put you, I mean, that's another thing. You know, a lot of the things that, that these people do in life, and you had mentioned the Clintons before in personal life and things, are things that everyone experiences. I mean, divorce, you know, there's been the first divorced president and first lady issue came about in the early 1900s with Florence Harding and Florence. Well, actually, I'm sorry. No, it came before that in the 1800s with Andrew Jackson. Andrew Jackson's wife, Rachel, was in a horribly abusive marriage and uh, divorced her husband in Tennessee. And it came out in the campaign and people were were giving her grief or things like that. That's kind of early on, but later on, Florence Harding w- would be a divorced first lady. But the person that Harding was running against, I, I forget his name, but whoever was running for he was divorced. So it's the two of those countered each other out. Politics is a horrible, horrible, rough, rough arena where, like, even more so, just nothing is off limits and you just go for the throat, anything you can do to win. And bringing up things that that we sit back from the comfort of our homes and our couches in front of our big screen TVs and judge these candidates for things that we've done ourselves or things that are in directly in our lives. It's 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 a really strange aspect of our world. Yeah. Well, I think we do that to celebrities, oh, well, to public fig, any kind of public figures are held to the same thing, exactly. uh, you know, different standards. Okay. So number, what are we on? Five or six? Uh, five. I think the fifth is the last first lady of the 19th century, Ida McKinley. And, and I wanted to talk about her for two reasons. Number one, Ida McKinley's father in the 1800s gave her a job in his bank in Canton, Ohio. 
He gave her that job because he openly said he did not want his daughter to not know about finances and beholden to any man or need a man for any reason in life. That is so groundbreaking. There are people today in the world that think that women shouldn't have their own money, shouldn't have their own job, should just be the quiet church mouse, wife, school marm, you know, whatever. In the 1800s, Mr. Saxon said, Ida, you need to understand money. You need to understand finances. I'm giving you a job in my bank. So you will never need to rely on a man for some of the necessary things to to move forward in life. That is so progressive. It's almost one of the most mind-blowing things I've said so far. And I've said some pretty mind-blowing things. So to think that, that this woman is working in the bank, where she then meets William McKinley, becomes his wife, and he's governor of Ohio as well. He's also the last president to be a Civil War veteran, which is just an interesting little tidbit that comes to my mind. So in Canton, Ohio, William McKinley, as he was governor, as he was a business leader, as he was a politician, would invite people into his house. Ida McKinley would always be sitting next to his office door. So McKinley would walk by, his guest would turn and say, oh, Mrs. McKinley, lovely to see you today. Nice to see you as well. Uh, McKinley would shuffle the, the guest into his office. He would go to close the door, but he would catch it with the heel of his shoe. And he would leave that door open. Ida McKinley would stay in that chair with her ear to the door, listening to the entire meeting. McKinley would finish the meeting, walk out, The guest would look down. Oh, Mrs. McKinley, lovely to see you again. Have a wonderful day. Off I'm going down to the market, to the bank, to the wherever, going home. And then William would turn around and say, Ida, come on in the office. Tell me what you think. What did you think? She was such an active role as we were talking about before. You know, these women taking this role in their husband's political careers before they could vote, before they could own land, before they could be properly, formally educated. And they had opinions because their husbands knew. Not only were these women looking for a man that was elevating in society, elevating in career, elevating in the world, but these men were looking for women that could help them. And they looked for these women of intelligence, of ambition, of aptitude. And Ida McKinley is one of the most uh, remarkable examples of that. And she was made that way because of her father. You know, you talk about what women are sold or what daughters are sold and what they he sold his daughter opportunity and advancement in the world that I would say nearly no other woman was sold by a man in those days. And it turns her into someone who would be the closest and most direct advisor and confidant to a president of the United States. I wonder if Ida's dad, you know, might have looked around and noticed because this happened. I read about it in the books I read that women who relied so much upon their husbands, which would have been of the time, of course, and then their husbands die and they are just destitute widows. um, And maybe they have a slew of children and it's just, you know, they then have to rely upon family. They have to rely on remarrying, which they might not have the chance to do. It is a very difficult situation and it's very forward thinking, but also Ida's dad looked around and was like, I'm not having that for my daughter. Like, I don't want that for my daughter. So that's one thing. But then the other interesting angle that we haven't touched on yet, of course, it's very obvious that you said, you know, it's not just about the women hitching their ride to someone who may or may not be president. What we talked about earlier, if if the wives wanted it or, or didn't want it, the men are choosing their spouses purposefully. And I think that it is so interesting to see what type of man chooses someone that they want to be 
a trophy or a showpiece or, you know, a lovely hostess versus a man who chooses someone who will be a partner, even if the time, you know, the era requires that partnership to sort of be happening behind closed doors only, but who does really value that input. Um, like you are saying about Ida, like we mentioned about Abigail Adams, I respect the men who who choose that type of partner. Okay, number six. Next. Okay. Well, uh, Edith Roosevelt. Now, the funny thing about Edith Roosevelt is when I'm in public, I always say, when I say Roosevelt, you say, and everyone says Eleanor, because naturally you would. Everyone loves Eleanor. She's always at the top. She's number one in polls. She was the longest first lady in history as FDR so brilliantly was elected before it was against the Constitution. He was elected to four terms as president And then, as shrewd as FDR was, he made it illegal to be elected to more than two terms, thus securing his history book record as being the longest president, sitting president in in history, and thus Eleanor Roosevelt, the longest first lady in history. But before FDR, there was another Roosevelt, and it was Theodore Roosevelt, who was a larger-than-life character, and he had a strong woman behind him. She ran the books. They have a place, had, they're not around anymore, the place is still there, Sagamore Hill on Long Island, and if you look through the books, she kept a ledger for every single, there's six children in the family, seven if you include TR, which I do because he was just a big kid. But so she had to keep track of all these people, keep all the accounting, all of the ledgers. And she wanted the estate out in Sagamore Hill in Oyster Bay, Long Island to be self-sustaining. So she had vineyards and gardens and animals and all this stuff. And she organized, again, very much like, like Martha Washington were saying, she was a female CEO of a corporation and a great family value and wealth that she had to manage. Well, she brings this family, this traveling circus. I mean, pets. I know your house is full of pets. My house is full of pets. In many times in my life, the animals outnumber the humans in the house. And I love it that way. Wouldn't have it any other way. But Edith Roosevelt brought this carnival to D.C. and everyone loved it and celebrated it. And this gave me an interesting perspective because of what she did. She taught me that these first ladies are also mothers. Mother is one of the hardest jobs in the world. If you were an active child like I, you know why my mother is a saint and for what she had to put up with me, boys will be boys, all that kind of stuff, snips and snails and puppy dog tails. I was a very active child, crazy man. Mrs. Roosevelt's family was was very similar. Well, they're coming off the heels of an assassination. Theodore Roosevelt became president because William McKinley was assassinated. She had this concern for her family, for her husband. She had to protect. We don't didn't have the, the type of secret service and the type of security and things that we have today. The White House was more of an open uh, arena of people that could come in and, and meet and talk and, and visit and things. And when the country wanted a piece of her children and wanted to be part of their lives, she hired a photographer got everyone out in the yard with their pets, took these wonderful, beautiful portraits. They're all over Google. You can look all over the place. And then she would set them out and leak them to the press in a very timed and measured manner. This allowed the country, the world, to have a piece of these children that they thought they were involved in their lives, but not directly. They weren't coming in. There wasn't this harm. So she taught me that first ladies can manipulate the press 
can manipulate the world and still raise their children on a world stage. It, that's another thing that we tell these women, we the people tell these women how to raise their children. Would, would you like anyone coming in that you don't know telling you how to raise you? No, you'd go bananas. I, I, anyone would. Uh, but, but we do this. They're going to the wrong school. They're wearing the same clothes. They're saying the wrong thing. They went to a concert and got drunk. Okay, well, so did everyone else in the world. But again, this double standard is holding. So Edith Roosevelt taught me something very, very important. And that is that 98% of these women that are first ladies are also mothers. So they're leading the country in a role in a certain way, but they're also trying to raise these human beings that they are mothers to. And when she moved into the White House, she looked around and she said, the place isn't big enough. And she did what no other first lady and many tried before, Edith Roosevelt was in charge of and inspired the renovations and expansion of the White House in 1902 that created the East and West Wing. She said, we will have an East Wing for socializing. We will have a West Wing for business. And dead center is the home where I will raise my children and I will do it in a way that is safe for them and in a way that I feel comfortable to give the public access to. And, and that puts Edith in just a whole different place and perspective to look at all these women and for why. I just have a, an incredible amount of respect for, for Edith Roosevelt. How was she able to add two wings to the White House when other families and presidents before had tried? Why did Edith get it done? Well, a lot of first ladies went to Congress and went to the government and said, I need money for this. Abigail Fillmore did it for the first uh, White House library. And there were other additions and expansions and renovations and things that were done. No one got it done on this level. And I think that part of it was the fact that she said, the previous president was assassinated. I've got six kids. Where do you want me to put them? Like, see, there's just not room. And entertain. And it's time. And, and it was changing. This, she's the first first lady of the 20th century. We're going from Victorian into the modern times. Even, even her clothes and the dress and things changed. And the attitude of the country. I mean, there's certain things. You look at, like, Jacqueline Kennedy came along at such the right time because her White House tour that was televised in February of 1962, I believe, on CBS, but other first ladies didn't have television to do this, you know? So being there, being at that right time and being able to take advantage of what the mood was, what the technology was, what was going on in society. And Edith Roosevelt was able to capitalize that and, and get the money that, that expanded the White House. So when you see the White House, when you look at it on TV, when you look at the footprint of the White House, you will now think of Edith Roosevelt, not Eleanor Roosevelt, or, or not any other first lady would say, wow, thanks, Edith. It's a neat building. That is true. Now I'll always think of that. I also wonder, as she was manipulating the press a little bit with her family, if she took a page from the royal family's book, who also does this very successfully. Sure. Now, I don't know enough about the royal family to know what their makeup looked like in the early 1900s, but... I just think it is interesting to see, you know, now, now that seems a little more transparent when like celebrities try to do this or whatever, but this is something that has always been done as long as there was oh, yeah. any kind of a, a press um, newspapers or whatever. So that is sort of interesting to see her be the precursor to leaking family photos and that sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, right. It's fascinating. Yeah. That is fascinating. Okay. Number seven. Are we on number seven? Grace Coolidge is who I have next. And she's the 30th first lady of the United States. And Grace Coolidge was interesting because she was her own woman before she met 
the president. So many of these women prior were wives without day jobs and things like that because it was the nature of the world. Grace Coolidge went to school at University of Vermont and learned sign language. And this is in the late 1800s. When she met Calvin Coolidge, she was teaching at the Clark School for the Deaf in Northampton, Massachusetts. This is just a caring, loving, nurturing woman that went a step beyond just becoming a teacher, which a lot of women were doing and still doing. Some of the earliest jobs of women were teachers, professional jobs, paid for jobs. But she didn't only want to be a teacher. She wanted to go that next step and teach deaf kids at a special institution to give these people that were falling behind in education or even understanding what their problems were in a time, again, not a lot of people were thinking in this mindset. So she's also I, just comes in one of my favorite periods of, of time, the Empire period when she was a first lady. She's one of the best dressed first ladies. Her clothes collection was just ridiculous. I mean, incredible jewelry. They said Cal Coolidge, Calvin Coolidge pinched a penny tighter than anyone else. But the one thing he'd spend money on was his wife's clothes and jewelry. And I've got, been to Plymouth Notch, Plymouth Notch, Vermont, to the Coolidge Museum. The collection there is just the beaded and the clutch purses and the things. And a lot of her clutch purses actually had little medallions. She was given, she also, while at University of Vermont, uh, was the scorekeeper for the men's baseball team. So she's referred to as the first lady of baseball. And baseball was one of her favorite pastimes. And she would get these free charms to go as first lady in these empire style, beautiful purses, always dressed to the nines with the hats that were kind of pulled down tight to the brow with the little brim. It's just a neat flapper period of, of time, the glorious and grandeur of it. She's fun to look at as well and study. But her heart was always so in the right place and teaching those deaf students when not many other people were and giving special attention always puts a soft spot in my heart for grace. Mm, That is commendable. That does show a a lot of heart. And just leading the way. It's doing it when no one, it's not, it wasn't cool to teach special needs kids at that point in time. It wasn't even thought of as necessary, but she felt it was necessary so much so to do it in a way and a time when other people were not. It's leading the way. It's progressive thinking. It's forward thinking. And it's making the world a better place, which I think is, is at the heart of so much of these first ladies' work. Yeah. Beautiful. Okay, number eight. Lou Hoover, the 31st, next president. Here's why I love Lou Hoover. People always ask me, Andy, who's your favorite first lady? You got to pick one. You're on a desert island. You can't walk away. Life or death, which is nearly impossible for me to do. But if I have to, I pick Lou. I always pick Lou. You know, Johnny Cash's song, A Boy Named Sue. This is a girl named Lou. Lou is not short for Louise. Her father wanted a boy, got a girl and named her Lou. And she is so maybe the most progressive thinker as far as women and what women can do in the world since Abigail Adams. Uh, History is strange. When the Hoovers came into the White House, uh, the Great Depression happened right out. There's there's no man, woman, child, alien animal that could have caused or solved the Great Depression in four years or eight years or whatever. And the Hoovers, who are possibly the, the most qualified man and woman to ever live in the White House for their life experience and what they did in the world, they just they were at the right place at the wrong time. And history doesn't remember them. Or when we remember the Hoovers, we remember him for the failing president during the Great Depression. But Lou taught herself seven different languages. She's the only first lady to speak uh, Mandarin Chinese, 
They're both self-made millionaires. Not that that is a gauge of success, but they both came from nothing. They both were very, very poor. And they met at Stanford University. Lou Hoover is the first first lady to graduate with a geology degree. She graduated from Stanford University in California. She and the present, she and the future president, her husband, Herbert Hoover, would travel around the world gaining this wealth. And she taught herself a different language in every place she went. Wildly, wildly intelligent. She uh, designed two of the houses that the Hoovers would live in with no architecture degree. All along in these travels and designing these houses and things, she embraced technology. She had uh, silent movie cameras when they first came out and took picture movies and, and just embraced new technology, different ways of the world, languages. One of the most remarkable things they did, which really, really touches my heart, is they built their own uh, summer White House, their own Camp David, their own vacation retreat in the Shenandoah Valley in Virginia. A little boy came into camp at one point in time when they were there for the president's birthday. And he said, I've got a, a gift for the president from the children of the neighborhood. Okay, great. Mrs. Hoover asked where the child went to school. The child said he didn't have a school. So, well, what, where do you learn how to read and write? And he goes, we don't. There just wasn't that. So the Hoovers with their own money, as they did time and time again, before and after the White House, with no expectation of being paid back at all, took their own money and built a school, hired the teachers, paid the teachers' wages, and then here's the greatest part. When Mrs. Hoover died, she lived in the Waldorf in um, uh, New York City after the White House, and they found in Mrs. Hoover's desk a box, and in the box was a stack of checks, and the checks were not cashed, and the checks were all from students from the school who had gone on and had the aptitude and the ability. Mrs. Hoover paid for their college educations, and some of these kids tried to pay her back, and she wouldn't take the money. And you just, you think about someone with, it, with, with a heart that big, with a philanthropic mind that big, to travel the world and have the experience and have the wealth and the ability to, to change things and using it for good with no PR machine, with no, no interviews, no look at me, no nothing, just because it's the right thing to do. I, I could go on and on about Lou. She's just, it, just a beautiful woman inside and out, remarkable human being that did so much with the privilege that she and her husband earned through life that nothing was handed to them. It's just, it, they're just a remarkable American story. I got to be honest with you, Andy. I've never heard the name Lou Hoover in my whole life. 100%, right? I'm with you. When I started this project, I could not have named every first lady. I'd like to maybe think that I could have struggled possibly through naming every president, but most people can't. Certainly not in order. I never knew who Lou Hoover was. And now she's my favorite. Wow. Yeah. It's just making me want to like Google all the things about Lou Hoover. <laughs> right? We could do 10 podcasts about Lou Hoover. I mean, we could. It's, it's, she's just incredible. No, have you thought about doing a podcast series about the first ladies? <laughs> man, I opened that can of work. I've got plans for the first ladies. Man, I'd love to see it first be an online college class because I think it's such an important message, not only for young women, but for young men and boys. Men need to understand that women have been part of the picture from the beginning because it's not like we're letting women into the room or listening to women. We always have. They've been there. Martha Washington gave press conferences on the way to winter encampments during the Revolutionary War. As I mentioned, George Washington needed Martha Washington to make America happen. And the sooner young boys are taught this about what girls can become and young girls are taught that they can become this, there's nothing holding them back, the, their abilities, that they can seek this out. 
sadly, they have to go after it more actively. You know, that gets better and better all the time as, as we grow. Well, I was going to save this for the end, but I'll just say it here while we're on the topic, because I realize that the only thing we have to talk about in talking about spouses of the leaders of our country are first ladies. You know, I'm super hopeful that eventually we will be talking about using the word spouses or partners or something, because I hope that there is a first gentleman. 100%. Whether that is from a female president, which I would love, or from a male president with a partner, which I would also support. Like, I hope that there is some variation to this topic. I love talking about women. I love talking about their roles, you know, behind the scenes or even more forward facing, but it's a bummer a little bit that we are still in 2020 and are only talking about the women of our country as not the top role, but as a supporting role. And I hope for different language, different outcomes of that in the future. I, no one will be busier than me because there's no precedent to even talk about what, what's he going to do? Does he pick out China patterns? Does he do, you know, what's he going to, what is that role going to happen? The traditional roles, is he going to host parties? Well, yeah, he is. And he's going to entertain these spouses of the foreign dignitaries as they come to visit while business is conducted in the Oval Office or whatever. We're for for as advanced as we are, when you think about leadership, people of color and gender, the United States of America is far behind every other country. Countries we consider less developed than us. Countries that were former uh, enemies of us in war and and conflict have had female leaders all over the place. And, And to look at our melting pot demographic and see that unfortunately it's been a bunch of people that look like me, white guys as president. All right, let's do the last two. This has been such a good conversation. It could go on for hours and hours. I know, I know. We're so over. Mamie Eisenhower, the 34th first lady of the United States, was so consequential in helping a war hero. Dwight D. Eisenhower, an American hero, total wild man, military his entire life. For the first time in American history, the female electorate outnumbered the male electorate. There were more women of voting age and voting in America than men. Women had the majority. And the Eisenhower campaign targeted those women. There were buttons that said, I like Mamie. Mamie and Pat, as Nixon was the the vice presidential candidate, Pat Nixon. There were aspects of the campaigns and the swag and the marketing and the promotion for Eisenhower that made no mention of the president. And it was all focused on women. And for the first time, it was almost as if we were electing a first lady. And she would do her own campaign events and target that market and hit, like you were saying, swing voters, soccer moms, professional moms, women in general. That was the demographic. That's what they were going after. And Mamie Eisenhower, both in spoken word, written word, articles, interviews, and just the promotion and swag and campaign tchotchkes was a major part of that successful campaign. So she was likable then. They didn't just use her. She was actually positioned well. Yes, no, very, very much so. She was like, she was, she was a direct asset, you know? I mean, that's another thing, you know? I mean, if you like the candidate, 
women soften these candidates anyway, because they often don't go out and talk about policy and things like that. And we want to see them as humans. We want to see them as husbands and fathers. And how best to do that? It's through the wife and the children, you know, type of aspect. So when these women who are also smart and have something to say, and they get out there and they got some substance, it's also saying, hey, Ike, this general, I mean, I'm sure there were people that were against all the wars he fought in too. It's always been a, might not have been a positive that he's a general or, or a hawk or, or a war guy, you know, to come back and say, oh, well, look, here's a nice lady who's going to come out and, and wear a nice hat and talk very affably about him being a father and a family man. They humanize their presidential counterparts and are a very, very important part of the, of the election and the campaigning process, always have been. It's just this is the time when women outnumbered it and they really focused a lot of attention on Mamie. And she was she was put forward in only the most positive of lights uh, by the campaign. And people loved it. People loved her when they love her. They love Ike. That's you know, we were saying it's tough to separate them sometimes. Sometimes it works in favor to link them and keep them connected. And sometimes it, it works against them. OK, last one. Last one. Okay. I'm going to tell you and the listeners right now who the most influential first lady past, present, or future is. And you think, how? How can I say that? I discovered it actually writing the books. And it's a first lady that was alive who I actually met when I was a little kid in Washington, D.C. Betty Ford. Betty Ford is the most influential first lady past, present, or future. And here's why it's for the obvious reason addiction and cancer. There's not a human being on planet earth, myself included, obviously, that cannot escape within their own family directly or indirectly cancer or addiction. In the 1800s, one of the Adamses, Abigail and John Adams's daughters in the 1800s had a mastectomy. We did not invent cancer in the 20th century. We did not invent addiction. And someone has to be first. Someone has to go out there publicly and say, this is a problem. And I've had people come up to me at, at speeches and events. A One woman came up and she said she remembered her father sitting at the kitchen table, aghast, offended, slamming his fist on the table because they had said breast on the nightly news in the mm. 70s. I mean, this is our lifetime. This is modern times. Betty Ford went through breast cancer and a mastectomy and drug addiction, substance abuse, alcohol abuse in public and said, it's okay, we're human. And she's a first lady that said publicly, this will go back to one of your past points. She said openly, while the president was in office, this wasn't even like a unified thing. She spoke out against things that were not in line with her, with her husband politically or publicly. And she had her own mind, the ERA, women's rights, alcohol abuse, cancer, all kinds of things that she talked about that did not help her husband publicly. And she said this on 60 Minutes. And then after the White House, President Ford said, most times I agreed more with my wife than not. But even if I hadn't, it wouldn't have mattered. She would have said her own piece. And here's the thing that will blow your mind. Here, If if your mind is not blown enough that Betty Ford is the most influential first lady, past, present, or future, she never should have been first lady. She never should have been first lady because her husband was not elected to president. He took over when Nixon retired. But here's the real mind blower. He never should have been vice president. He was appointed vice president after Nixon's uh, Agnew got himself into all kinds of legal trouble and had to resign before Nixon had resigned. So 
President Gerald Ford was appointed to the position of vice president that would put him into position to be appointed to president that would then make Betty Ford first lady to turn out to be the most influential first lady past, present, or future, in a place she had no business being. And she said it. She said it on 60 Minutes. She said, if people don't like me, let them throw me out. This is the what I think. This is what I believe. And this is what I'm going to say. I want to use my platform to do it. And yeah, I got problems. And yeah, I had cancer. But I beat it. And we need to know there would be no breast cancer walks. There would be no pink ribbons. There would be none of this without Betty Ford. And again, we didn't invent it. And so for her, it's just the undying gratitude of a woman that, that was in a place that she, she didn't necessarily want to be, that caused some problems for her with, with this, the substances and things like that, with all the attention and things, um, not helping her husband politically with some of her views, which I'm sure caused for some rough dinner table conversations and things like that. But she went out and she put herself out there in a role where she wasn't paid to do, elected to do, or even given a job description of how to do it. And her husband shouldn't have even been in the position for her to get that role. It almost makes you think the way that history plays out, that it was more important for her to be first lady than it was for him to be president. Absolutely. Fascinating. What an amazing note to end on. Just how powerful we can all be. Just one voice, one person who maybe end up somewhere in their life that they never expected, but they have the power to make an impact. That is such a great place for us to end on today. I loved this conversation with you. I need to go like do all the research now. I want to watch <laughs> all the documentaries, read all the books. This is a wonderful conversation for us to have in the week of an American election that has been so contentious and where there are so many difficult aspects to this political moment that we're in to really highlight some of these positive things, these women who changed the world, who affected our nation, and who really just made such a more impact than we even know, because sometimes we don't even know their names. I loved learning all of these things today. Thank you so much for being here. Will you tell the listeners where they can find out more about you, more about your series, your books, follow you on social media? Where can they go? Laura, first, let me just say thank you. It has been an absolute pleasure. I, the, the excitement in your voice, the excitement in your knowledge, I'm sure you're going to go break Google after this in all the searches with, and the listeners as well, which I love it. But there's also all kinds of extras. Again, we've just scratched the surface. Everything can be found at firstladiesman.com. You can connect with me social media. You can connect with the books. There's a store page there. I'd love to sign books for your listeners. Anyone out there, there's videos. You can watch the series there. I've got a link to the C-SPAN White House Historical Association link in my video page. I've got past interviews, written articles, outtakes, the works. If people have a lot of fun with it, and it's a lot of fun to do. And thanks to people like you, it just makes it more and more fun every day to be the first ladies man. Awesome. just listened to the 10 Things to Tell You podcast. You can find the show notes and subscribe to episode emails at 10thingstotellyou.com slash podcast. And you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at 10 Things to Tell You. Remember, this is an interactive podcast. I have 10 things to tell you and you have 10 things to tell. So take this topic to your journal or a friend 
or post on social media using the hashtag 10 things to tell you. These episodes are meant to bring connection with others and ourselves and spark better conversations. Thanks for listening. Now go share something.